0: This is OTB Sports Radio
1: when Matt Busby signed me. I joined a club with three European footballs a year, a World Cup winner. Unbelievable. To play with bestie, Matt Busby' management was incredible. He picked players like a jigsaw puzzle. He didn't pressurize you, go out and enjoy yourself. He never swore. Matt Busby never swore. Can you imagine that from a manager today? He never swore. Off the ball, Saturdays from 1 on OTB Sports Radio. Listen live on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network. You ain't shit. I wish
2: I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. (laughs)
1: Well, you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until 5 o'clock. We're streaming the conversation as well now. So as well as listening on News Talk, you can watch us on the Off the Ball social channels. For Periscope and Twitter, at Off the Ball on YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTV Sports app. This is the Saturday panel. The subject matter this week... Ulster Gaelic football legends, the dominance of the northern counties in the early 90s and the state of the game nowadays. So over the next hour, we're going to talk about then and now with three legends of the game. We're delighted to be joined by James McCartan, the All-Ireland winner with Dan in 1991 and 1994, and the former manager of the Mourn Men. Declan Bonner, an All-Ireland winner with Donegal in 1992, the current manager of Turconal and the 1993 All-Ireland winner, Joe Brody, the broadcaster and writer as well. James, Declan, Joe, good afternoon, lads.
0: How's it going? You forgot, Good afternoon, John.
1: To, you forgot to say the only down manager to lose an All-Ireland Final. <laughs> That's right. We've kicked off the corner forwards convention lads already. <laughs> Joe
2: couldn't hold the whole bag straight away. Still in there with a killer. Yeah.
1: We'll just start off lads um at the environment of what it was like in the early 90s. Uh, Dan won in 1968 then there was 23 barren years in, in, in Northern football before you won the All-Ireland, the Sam McGuire Cup again. Um, I did a clear out of my uh, books uh, recently, guys, and uh, there was one book that I kept that really uh, left a mark on me. It's uh, from Des Fahy. It's called uh, Death on a Country Road about uh, two Derry fans, uh, Sean Farmer, Colin McCartney, uh, who went to the All-Ireland semi-final in 1975 to see uh, Dublin and Derry. Uh, they were murdered in a sectarian attack and, uh, on a fake checkpoint. Of course, there were atrocities on both sides in the conflicts. But in the early 1990s, um, Joe and James especially here, what was your experience, Joe, as a person, as a Gaelic footballer well, playing for Derry in the uh, in the early 90s? Well,
0: just, just just let me stop you a sec. It, it, I noticed that you said there were atrocities on both sides. You have to understand that on one side, there was the state with all its machinery, its legal machinery, you know, its security machinery. I mean... Let's not forget that by the very early 70s, whenever the civil rights movement had been very forcibly uh, and aggressively sort of destroyed, there were over a thousand men, the vast majority from communities like myself and James, put in a camp inside a wire enclosure that you might see sort of in World War II and held there, in some cases, for three and a half years without charge, without any information to families, so that my own father, for example, who was the chairman of the Dungiven Club, was taken away one morning. We did not see him for three years. We weren't given any information. And that was a very typical story across the North. So it is correct, of course, to say that some very bad atrocities were committed by the provost, etc. But I think that you have to look at what occurred in the North and what happened thereafter was the Gaelic football in the North through the context of uh, a a very powerful military regime taking on the Catholic people of the North. Um, And so, I mean, I've made this point before that if you look at, let's say that 69 was the start of the troubles whenever um, Robert McCluskey was battened to death and been given Main Street, My Town, and the murder was covered up. Uh, he was a, a bachelor who'd come in to, to, to have a pint of stout in Jim McReynolds to get his groceries, and he was beaten to death on the Main Street just beside the credit union. And uh, no one was ever charged with that. It was police officers who killed him. No one was ever charged with that. There wasn't a word about it. It was covered up in the normal manner. But if you take that as the starting point of the Troubles and wind forward 21, 22 years, now you're into the Great Down team, Derry winning the All-Ireland, Ulster teams dominating colleges football. And so the lesson that came out of the Troubles was that it drove our communities together. And the Guild Games became more important than anything else during that whole period. And uh, you can see that very clearly. It's been traced through by
1: academics as well. Cross McGlenn Rangers as well, obviously. Um, Another example of that.
0: Yeah, countless, I mean, clubs, northern clubs dominated um, the club scene. Once you you add on about 20 years to the start of the troubles, and that tells you that we were driven together into very nuclear communities where it was them and us. (laughs) And you were forced to rely on each other.
1: Was that your experience, James? in Dan?
2: Yeah look, I suppose during the 80s my one personal experience was during the hunger strike in 81 we had to leave our primary school uh, because we were just the goose and uh, getting beaten up and such things and uh, and so we had to change schools because we, we lived in a Protestant community. Now as always it's always the, the small few that, that are reflected that most people were, were great in the area but there's always a small bunch so we had to change schools. Whenever Uh, down on the line in in 91. I was at Queen's University in Belfast and basically the RUC called around and told my mother that uh, I shouldn't be coming home at the weekends and to check under my car and etc etc. So those things like going on. During the the late 80s whenever I was in Cummins and Newry, again uh, they tried to extort money from uh, my father who was a publican for the uh, Loyalist prisoners and basically they, they, they were able to tell him what uh, buses as children were getting on what time they were coming home from school at and things like that so look with all those things going on but yes the time the 90s came like you know all the counties are going to say they're tight knit groups and look it did bring us all together, we're all fighting I remember going we train, down train traditionally during the winter in Valley Kilner which is a an army barracks resort and I remember getting stopped in a typical student fashion with all skin hair, hair, haircuts and they asked us uh, what regiment we were with you know, and we quickly told them we weren't with any regiment and chased us on, you know. So we were mis- we were mistaken for soldiers at that stage. But look, yeah, during the, the early 90s, we were all taken up groups. All, all Donegal, Derry Down and other counties are all strong panels. And look, we all came together in adversity and won, but there wasn't much to do. There was no Netflix or such things back in those days and getting out and playing Gaelic football. was your entertainment. And uh, so we all grew up and lived for
1: did the troubles seep into Donegal in any way, uh, Declan, or was it more the issue about Ireland in the late eighties and nineties that we had a, a basket case economy and that was bigger a bigger issue than than what was going on in the six counties?
3: We we had pretty pretty handy listening listening to the guys there, but uh, no, we were just focused on 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 playing football and uh, trying to beat these guys, which was never easy. But uh, we got a fair brunt of it ourselves from when we when we met the likes of Derry and Down and of these guys in the, in, in the eighties and nineties, but. Uh, no, it made, it made it, that Ulster unit very, very competitive. <laughs> to this day, it's still very, very competitive. It's, it's only championship, really. You know that uh, that is competitive. But uh, when you when you look back on those years, uh, you know it took us probably took Down beating us probably back in '91 for us really to realize we probably weren't that far away. And um, I think that really spurred us on. But uh, yeah, they were golden years.
0: And we had awful chuckles off the field as well. Always, you know. I mean, I remember. Do you remember the night out in Glasgow that yourself and Tony Scullion got into the rumpus, and uh, and you know, Tony fired him up over the table. Tony was unbelievably strong, you know. Declan got his tie Tony, but-
3: I- Hi, listen, Joe, that's gathered legs now from you. I, did, I didn't read about it there a couple of, a couple of months back. Already. I know it's gathered legs as a year Dick ago. suppose stories Dick. normally do. They do gather legs as a year Dick ago.
0: Degglin got his tie and squeezed it right up at his throat. You see Scully, you know, Scully had fired him over the table. and There was just a great roar of laughter, you know. and like It's the thing that I think about the game now that it's become very boardroomified. Everything's very serious and lads don't really speak to each other and they wear their earphones and they come to train and they go and they've got wellness Classes and the everything training etc. We used to have an awful chuckle as well, and we used to have great social nights together. You know. uh, there was a book. Written we we was usually, was... usually leading the charge.
1: <laughs> yeah, there, there was a book written about um the the middleweights in the eighties called uh, Four Kings about Hagler, Hearns, Duran, and, and Sugar Ray Leonard, and how these guys kept on beating each other. And it was a golden age for middleweight boxing in America. Uh, When I'm looking through the records there, everybody seemed to beat everybody else in in that period between 91 and 94. Derry and Dan beat beat each other twice. You you know, you beat uh, Derry in the 92 final, Declan in 93. Uh, You know, you won through in Derry, Joe. Uh, What what stood out, uh, Joe, vividly from those battles and those characters and those crucial uh, wins, especially the one in in the 8-6 win in in 93?
0: See, uh, I have a very clear view of what happened to Ulster football. I mean, Donegal had a superb team. They had superb Gaelic footballers in every position. And yet, they were failing at national level. And it was very much, for me, it was a confidence thing. It was a, a feeling that, look, this far, but no further. And and then, Wee James came along. And he, he changed everything. I mean, anyone who saw Wee James play as a 15, 16-year-old, you know, I remember myself and my father used to go to see St. Coleman's games to watch him. You'd go like, oh, Jesus. I mean, it was, a, it was genuinely a phenomenon. You went with genuine excitement to see him playing. We hadn't seen anything like this before. Perhaps Dermot McNichol, but Dermot wouldn't have had James's, you know, uh, ability to make decisive contributions all the time. I mean, he was completely unstoppable. You would go to games and laugh. I remember Wee James playing in a McCrory Cup final against Mahara. And it was the, the Mahara team that was the Derry Miners, Togolot, that won the All-Ireland. They were absolutely all-conquering. And Wee James' team had been all-conquering in the previous year. I think, Wee James, you'd already get an All-Ireland Minor championship at that stage. And the match was played up in Kale Island. And there was a huge crowd at it because there were so many personalities and characters in both teams, but primarily to watch this man. And as I recall, you scored a hat-trick of goals that day, in a losing cause, and each goal was sensational. I mean, he would pick up the ball in the middle of the field. The other thing about him, he could take a ball at full speed, running towards it, take it, roll over it three or four times, be up on his feet, beat three or four men, stick it in the net. I mean, he was... And the down team that he came into... Which is the point of me? So I just
2: like to pick you for my eulogy at my funeral, just to make a positive contribution there. If ever I go, if I go before you, I need you to be able to speak, right? James, well,
3: well, you didn't, you didn't realize you were that good. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you talk about grown legs, or <laughs> but the down keep team, Joe. Enjoy, I'm enjoying it. I'm not believing <laughs> it, it, but I'm enjoying it
0: it. it. it is the truth, and the down team that he came into, very much like the Donny Ball team that Declan was playing on. They clearly had very, very good players all over the field. They didn't. They didn't believe that they could. And I remember Sean O'Neill saying after Down were beaten about a year or two before James came into the senior team. He said he was interviewed. You know the way he felt it was. He was interviewed after Tyrone had beaten Down and Down had tamely surrendered to them. Uh, and Sean said about Sean Donnelly, the Tyrone cornerback. Well, he said, "Mister Donnelly, better make hay while the sun shines." There's a little boy called James McCartan from Tullylish who'll have him in his sights in a year or two. And boy, was he right about that. I mean, Lee James completely changed the scene in Ulster because all of a sudden, you know, down were in Croke Park. I mean, the team that couldn't be beaten, Meath, I mean, you ran, Lee James ran riot that day, could not be marked. And, you know, and there it was. And as Declan says, once down won't all Ireland. Well, Donegal said, hey, we can do this as well. And we said, we can do this as well.
1: So did it make a tangible difference then, the 91 success? Did it, did it give you that belief, Declan, that you could go in 92 once you got through that Ulster final? And, and the- yeah,
3: listen, it, it did, there's no doubt. Because if you look back where, where we came from, where, where Donegal were, I mean, 72 was our first Ulster senior title. So 72 and 74, Brian McEnough was involved with both of those then. 83, we, we won Ulster in 1990, beat Armand final. And um, we played, I remember we, we, we played Meade. In the semi-final, a very good mid team that that uh, James started there the following the following season, but um we just didn't have the belief. Joe was one hundred percent right. We, we didn't have the belief. We I think we were just happy with our lot to to win Ulster. Um and I remember we played Ferman, I think it was in, in, in Joe or uh, a us in ninety one, and then ninety two we beat Ferman in the semi-final, and we were basically. I still remember uh, an addressman Oma. And basically, the players were saying, lads, if we're, if we're going to go do the same thing we've done over the last three years, we're going to get the same result. We might win Ulster, we might not win Ulster, but we'll be definitely not going any further. So basically, from that moment when we left Oma that evening, we just, I mean, normally you'd be on the on the session for two days after getting re- after one winning an Ulster semi-final or final. That wasn't the case. We were back on the pitch on, on the Monday and getting ready for an Ulster final. And we trained like we'd never done before ahead of that Ulster final against Derry. And that carried us right through 92. And the belief was there. There's no doubt we faced, we you know, we, we had 14 men and uh, before half time in that ulcer final, John Cunningham got sent off. And then we had Tony Boyle picked up an, an injury. And that was a huge loss to us. So we came out that second half and um, we won that Ulster, Ulster 92. We supposed to come back and then to the semi-final against Mayo, poor game. But again, we got over the line. And I think getting over the line, we couldn't see ourselves being beaten at all around 92, to be quite honest. Uh, it was serious belief within that group, and um,
0: I, think, I think Tony Boyle yeah. was a massive a massive factor. You know, Tony's arrival a bit like Wee James, because Tony didn't see. You know, he, he had no baggage. A lot of the non players had been through a lot of heavy campaigns and lost. You know, in big games, and then Tony just a bit like Wee James, he he just he played freely. You know, nothing seemed to deter him.
3: Tony Saxon's first start for Donegal was in the nineteen ninety All Ireland semi-final. That was his first game that, that he came on the All final final nineteen and nineteen ninety, and he started against Mick Lyons. Nice Baptism, in an All Ireland semi-final. But uh, I'm sure when Joe goes back to the north, it'll be a pint waiting for him now, up in Patrick's. Yeah.
0: Well, as if as if there wasn't before.
3: <laughs> Do you remember
0: That's the name? Remember the the name? Declan, we bar up in Dewey. It's the most amazing sight. Probably you've never been near me James, but it's right on the beach. And it's very, very remote. Eventually you would think, well, the, the sat-nav must be wrong. And myself and Declan were drinking there. And Paddy, who Seamus Heaney immortalised in a poem, A Cart for Edward Gallagher. That's about Paddy's father and Paddy. But Paddy, he's a bachelor and he sits behind the bar and he, he sips whiskey, you see, but he thinks you can't see him. And as the day goes on, he was getting lower and lower and lower on the stool. <laughs>
3: Right. That's true, that's true, true, yeah.
0: The of, of place at the bar is a photograph of <laughs> Nick with the samovere in 92 beside Packy.
3: Joe gets up there fairly often, John, during, during the summertime, so there's a seat there for him alright, so he gets to, yeah. He was now, I think there was one evening we were over there, and I think a couple of Tyrone guys might have been staying over there, I think he might have got a bit of abuse that night and we all sat back and enjoyed it.
0: But it's a wonderful place, honestly. It's just a, it's an escape from reality. I think Seamus Heaney and Brian Friel used to go up there hmm. just to, to do that, you know, because it's, it's, it's so remote and so beautiful.
1: So in 93, were you gunning from the time oh. of the draw, Joe, to, to, to avenge uh, these, these defeats to Down and Donegal and come through and win that all through? Anthony whole oh. obviously a huge uh, figure coming through for you in midfield.
0: Well, I think the most influential person, you know, was, well, it was a duo, Henry Downey and Johnny McGurk from Lavie. We would have been sworn enemies of it wasn't done given but don't forget they had, brought a, they had driven a tiny, tiny club in Lavie to win to be the All-Ireland Club champions. And Henry was one of those players if you set him out and you did a, a skill session, you would say, Ah, mediocre, you know, but put him on the field. A bit like Roy Keane, he was just burning. And he, he drove us on and drove us on. And obviously, we had the players and the personalities and we knew we could beat down. We knew we could beat Donegal. We'd beaten down two or three times in big games. And and in fact, nearly the worst thing that could have ever happened in 91, we nearly stopped their All-Ireland run because they forced a draw against us in the Ulster semi-final in Athletic Athletic. Ross Carr kicked a free from about 50 metres on the whistle to draw the game. And then they beat us narrowly in the replay. And I always say, thank God we didn't win that because there was no way that we were ready to win in All-Ireland then, you know, but by 93, we'd been through the mill with Down, we'd been through the mill with Stony Gall. and there was a sense in the group, just what Declan saying, although for us, we didn't, we didn't start our training after the Ulster semi-final, we started much earlier. <laughs> but we, uh, at training, there was a sense of warfare, and every night at training was warfare, presided over by Downey and McGurk, who were, you know, sort of, you know, those, you always, and we, we have them, you know, every, everyone has these on a successful team. You know, the Dubs have two or three of them. Uh, these schizophrenics who are terribly polite and lovely lads off the field, but when they're on the field, you know, they'll go to the very end. It's, you know, the, it's, like the, it's like the great boxer rising to it in the 15th round of a heavyweight bout. You know, there was something, those two had a dark heart, and they drove us on and really you know i know from the outside people think it's a wonderful thing to win the all-ireland but from our perspective we were good enough you know and and the, the thing then was just to simply go and do it and there was most certainly a sense throughout that year that nothing would prevent us from winning that and particularly after the defeats to down and running well in the previous years
1: you kept cork uh, scoreless for the last 25 minutes of the game joe and then you scored the last four points did you, you when you know when you feel when you're about to feel like you're gonna win it, what what's coursing through your veins are you even thinking about it at that stage well
0: it, it, it washes over you very very quickly and you know it was you know, there was a vast excitement like I, I felt such a vast excitement all year and you know, it was it was almost like a fantasy you know and taken to the field there was an unreal quality to it and you just I, mean, I can't remember anything about those games—the All Ireland semi-final and final. I mean, we just in we went and came out the other end. But I do remember very vividly standing in the shower after the All Ireland final, saying to Fergus McCusker, "Is this it? Is this it?" And feeling desolate, almost like a sense of total anticlimax. And the two of us wandered up to the Cat and cage and had a pint. In those days, there were no big formalities. We went up to the Cat and cage and had a pint, and drank with Dubs in there for a while. And, and I can remember thinking, I can feel it now when I'm sitting here, that sense of anti-climax, which was a great lesson in life. You know, that all that stuff is, once it's behind you, you just, you move on. What's next? You know, you have to move on. You can't live in the past.
1: What was your feeling, James? You just took to Croke Park like a duck to water against me, Then the Dubs. Man of the match and the goal in 94 as well.
2: Yeah, well, I suppose was, was, um Look, in 91, coming to the final, I was not playing overly well. I reckon at a poor, didn't play that well in the Ulster Championship. Maybe had a half-decent Ulster final, but definitely didn't contribute very much in the semi-final. Peter Whithnell got his, got his two goals. In the final, uh, look, because of maybe the performance, I was in the second year. My first year, I probably was getting more attention because I scored a couple of goals. But by the time the final came around, it was Mickey Linton and Peter Whithill that the focus was on, and I maybe sneaked in under the radar a little bit. Uh, Robbie, O'Malley <laughs> was down to mark, Robbie O'Malley was down to mark me, and I think he got injured in the, in the build-up to the game, and, and Brendan Riley ended up starting on me, who made his name as a, as a forward later on with, with me with an alarm. So look, I, I maybe just got a, a fraction more leeway than, than, uh, than the other guys, and they, they, because of their performances. I got the room, and it was, well, it was about time I performed in, in the... In the final that year, again in '94, look after beating Derry in the first round, it's very strange. You went from being nobody going in, going in and playing Derry as complete underdogs, and then after the Derry game, you're installed basically as favourites for the Ireland, which is very strange. Playing in the Ulster Championship, knowing knowing that you, if you didn't win the All Ireland in September, months away, that we're going to be deemed a failure. So it was again, we managed to to get through to the final. Playing okay against Cork in the semi final. Uh, the final against Dublin was a very poor day, and, and uh, weather wise, and Down would have had the sort of reputation, and, and maybe still do to a certain extent, that they're a dry ball team. And good forwards, I suppose, want a dry, dry ball, but I suppose anybody, good forwards should still be able to play in the wet. But it's back in those days, we seemed to have difficulty getting victories in, in the wet, as proved the following year against Donegal. So it was a big, uh, we, we, Gritted out and battled out on an final when that could have went either way if Charlie Redmond had stuck, stuck the ball in the net. I was lucky to, to be on the end of a, a very selfless act from Mickey Linton, who passed the ball over to me. And again, look, Mickey was on fire that year. He was, he was player of the year. and You know, at times he was unmarkable. So, look, uh, probably the big game for me that year was the first round against Derry. But again, again, Mickey Linton, he scored six points from play and again, was proven a handful for... Gary Coleman or Tony Stallion or whoever happened to be yeah, on them. So, look at two. I know Joe's excited to get in there, so I better
0: bow. But, but yet, you know, again, that year the decisive contributions were James's because, you know, it is correct in hindsight, the crucial game, the final was really the first round. And in that game, I set Fergal McCusker up for a goal with seven or eight minutes to go. And that put us ahead. And that was the first time I think that we'd been ahead and the game was done. The game was done. And about a minute or two later, James scored probably the most remarkable point I've ever seen on a Gaelic football field. Carl Diamond took a shot. it It dropped a bit short. It was knocked to James down the right wing. And you could see in his mind, I was going to ask you this. Was it your intention? I'm going to go the length of the pitch and no matter what happens, this is going over the bar. Because eventually three dairy defenders chased him and, I was fully relieved when I saw Kieran McKeever coming across because I thought, you know, he's not going to score with McKeever. And out, out on the right wing on his right foot, after was an absolutely lung bursting run where he was, you know, with the way Wee James pinballed about being knocked down and getting moved. He scored the point. And I knew when he scored the point, you could feel it. It changed everything. It changed everything. And all of a sudden, there was angst in the Derry ranks. And it was Wee James. You know, Mickey Linton was gone by that stage. I mean, McKeever had picked him up. And had, you know, I mean, he had scored all his points in the first half and McKeever picked him up and that was the end of him. And uh, this man again, you know, that thing that you just can't put your finger on, but the truly great footballers of which he has won. You know, and uh, that day was really we teams who turned it around and uh, say it's uh it was a great disappointment for us because it, for other reasons off the field, it then destroyed that team, but uh, so he, he sort of he, he showed us the way to an All Ireland and then he destroyed us. <laughs> a truly a love hit figure in Derry. That's true, but Joey. that's absolutely true, E. James, about that game. You know yourself, you'd never have won it without you. There's absolutely no way. That game was gone from down after the ball. So, Joe,
2: you've been, well, you, you eulogize about me. I think you're particularly harsh and some other members of the, the down team, you know. and... Like Mickey Linden and, 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 oh, you're and, great and player, I know you're you're but yeah, well, it's nice to get nice things said about you. I have to sort of not agree with with a lot. Some of them anyway, look and as Mickey Linden was magnificent at that oh, day. He scored one, one point in the second half and he certainly created he slipped the ball for Kieran McKeeb's goal, if you remember, uh, and just a wee flick off the shoulder and then he went on to, to you know be the player of the year and certainly in the Ireland final. Well, went, well, I, don't, I, don't get me so wrong,
0: great player. Like, don't get me wrong, but it just yeah, point. Scored a point. he scored
2: a point with Paul Clark, uh, a similar one maybe that oh, he scored, and right. Derry coming along the sideline where the angle was so acute. And Paul Clark, who as a probably wasn't a out and cornerback, was put into Mark Mark Mickey and did absolutely everything right to prevent to prevent that score. And Mickey still showed the way. So look, while it's, it's, oh, as say, it's nice, to see nice things, there's other good players in that team too.
1: Declan, uh, for you in 92, uh, it was a novelty for uh, Donegal that Dan and Derry had already experienced, had already been in all ireland finals, even though it was 58 for Derry or um, uh, for 60 in the 60s for Dan. What was it like for you? Was it pure euphoria when you scored that, that, that late point to make it 18-14 against the Dubs? You weren't expected to win. What was the uh, emotions that were running through your veins uh, and, and what was the reaction back at the community and the clubs back in, in, uh, up in the hills?
3: Yeah, no, just pretty... Uh... That's, it was pretty special, no doubt about it. Um, going back, I suppose we, we, I spoke earlier about beating and then the semi-final against Mayo, uh, a game that will not go down as one of the all-time greats. Um, but against the preparation went into Dublin, we just felt, you know, we'd done a huge amount of work. There's no doubt about that there. Um, some of the, the stuff that we'd done would go against any of the sports signs that's out there nowadays. Uh, we were going... Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We could go three, four nights on the trot. Wouldn't be heard of now. Um, but we just felt good into that final. We didn't get off to particulars. I think the, the turning point probably was Charlie Redman, the missed penalty. And, uh, you know, we really had a purple patch after. I think we went 9-4. We made a score with seven points in the trot um, at one stage in the first half. Uh, yeah, and the last yeah. score went, put, put us four up. We just felt at that stage that was, that was it over, you know. But... Uh, no, great, great, great emotion to be quite honest, and uh, first time doing it, uh, really special, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was some, um, some time after. There's no doubt about it. The celebrations went on, long and hard.
1: Was it more than the captain cage? Uh, no, the
3: captain cage, uh, the ca- yeah, the captain cage. We would spend a bit of time around the captain cage also, but uh, no, we didn't get an opportunity on the, on that occasion. It was uh, back to Malahide, and then we were we were staying there, I think, the Burlington at that stage. Both teams would have went to the Burlington the guards, on the on the, the, guards, on the Monday.
0: The guards, the guards spent a bit the next year driving them home from their
3: nights out. That's <laughs> another one of Joe's going to gather more <laughs> legs too. But anyway, uh, we went. Yeah, no, we, we stayed in, in Dublin and we came down on the, on the Monday, so it was uh, huge. Yeah, it was a special time and traveling around and you know going back. I suppose looking ahead, ended '93 when when we got into '93 and I'll still. Maintain that final should never have taken place against Derry and 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 It was an absolute quagmire. Uh, now listen, Derry's name was probably on the cup in 1993, but just felt you know it was a low-scoring game. I think total had a really immense game. It was uh, it, the game would never have taken place now. That was just oh, unbelievable. No chance. No Not a chance. Yeah, well, yeah, I agree
0: totally. I mean, it was yeah. like a it was like a, a, a mud wrestling. Players were coming off afterwards. You know, and you could you could see your eyes. You know, people were. And I think, as I recall, Declan didn't. One of the in the minor match, I thought one of the minor footballers got his leg broken very, very badly, skidding in on the. And you were talking about your foot and parts of the pitch. Your foot was being submerged when you put your foot down on the pitch. The water was above it. Water was yeah. above your boot.
3: I think the referee. I've not mistaken. The only boys
0: right. have been whinging about it ever since. Whinge, whinge, whinge. whinge. But,
3: uh, no, no, we lot not. We, we, we haven't <laughs> been, But I think. Ulster the Council made a call that day that the game was going to be played and that was it. And it was dangerous. It was dangerous from a player's point of view. And you're right, Joe, there was a young minor got a horrific leg break in, in well, the minor geez, game geez, you're prior, prior to our game. And uh, yeah,
0: it at
3: the end of the... It It wouldn't have made any difference. We still... We had a bit... If you look, going back from 92 then into 93, we didn't actually manage it well. I have to say that because we played... The leagues at that stage were all mixed up. We ended up playing in Carlow and temporarily, and uh, we were down... Uh, the leagues and what way they were jumbled up, but we continued to play week in, week out, and we didn't, you know, by the time we came to the Ulster final, I was just looking there, we had five of the starting lineup that, that played in the all Ireland final weren't there, so we did give you a wee break on there. Now, we're not holding that against you, Joe. You used to, you used to serve to win it, and you used to serve to win the all Ireland. but uh, we, we, we lost the backbone with Martin Gavigan, Anthony Malloy Tony Boyle, Noel Hegarty, Donald Reid, never played in that Ulster final in 93, but uh, it was... Uh, yeah, that was it, and uh, it took us another 20 years to go back and and won it under uh, gym in 2012.
0: You know, it, it was a pity, really, in a way that that, that I suppose it, it was just the way it was, but that that those teams all battered each other in the first rounds of championship. I mean, I think we put down out in, in your prime games twice, maybe in the first round. You put us out in the preliminary round, you know. And uh, if you'd had a back door in those days, it would have been a very different story. But of course. It wouldn't have had the same vast excitement. I mean, I remember that match up at Celtic Park where you guys came up to the place, and also the previous year in Casement Park where I think there were forty-three or forty-four thousand people in Casement Park, the biggest ever crowd there for our semi-final. The vast excitement of that. I mean, the, you, we came out of the changing room at Celtic Park and as, you felt the ground was moving. I it was just and you could hear people were squealing. It was fever pitch from start to finish. And uh, you know, I think that the back door has diluted a lot of that. You uh, had a
3: huge fan club, Joe, around that time. I mean, a lot. I mean, ten,
1: fifteen thousand extra were going just to see you. Aye, aye. aye. <laughs> Speaking about the fact that we had a championship back in the early 90s, guys, which didn't have a back door, uh, we had a Congress last weekend. Joe, it seems miraculously the mist has cleared and the par- pandemic has accelerated a split season for GA for a club and in inter county. Um, is this a winning formula for the future for you? I know you've been advocating for
0: it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Players need to have a life. What has happened is with the commodification of the game, you know, the onset of the GPA the professionalization of the game. I mean, Declan will tell you this. I mean, Declan is managing now at the highest level and, you know, previously took a very successful Donegal under 21 team. And it becomes, it has become a job and that conveyor belt can get very wearisome. And, you know, we're, we're now seeing a very different type of game as a result. You know, players mentally a break. It is an amateur sport. And, if the pandemic has had one good outcome you know when i say that with you know great respect you understand what i mean when i say that it's that you know we're seeing now that we've been forced to have a shorter season and that's what we need we just cannot continue the way we've been going because it's taken all the fun out of the game and you see that in the body language and behavior of players as I, I, I use the phrase again, the board roomification of the game. The game has just become a branch of politics, a branch of every other part of society. You know, the characters have gone out of it. The distinctive skill sets that we used to see a player coming along with really distinctive skill sets. Do you remember Thunder Thighs, Derek McDonald, Gavin Nicklin, Boys that? or we James coming along, or Dermot McNichol. You know, players with very distinctive skill sets. You know, and increasingly now, it's very, very seeming. Because we're on that conveyor belt, you know, of 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 zombie coaches, you know, zombie methods that are done without regard to the individuals at your disposal, and slowly but surely the fun has been taken out of it. And uh, so we need to we need to stick with what we're doing now. I think there's no reason that we shouldn't we'll get rid of the subsidiary competitions, shorten the season. I thought. You know, obviously you want supporters to be there and for us all to have the joy that we feel from, from that. But last year was the way forward. Short, short, short season. And there's no need, need to be dragging it out. And boys need to have a life and to be able to get on with their lives.
1: Declan, are you in favour of the, the split season? And how have things changed from from your playing days? 30 years on, we're speaking about Donegal 92, to a situation now where I'm sure there's... Not as much of a drinking culture, it's strength and conditioning, it's, it's almost it's semi professional. What is your experience day to day now as a manager with a, trying to manage a panel of players that are, are taking this very seriously?
3: Yeah, listen, it's, it's professional and everything but name, but uh, these guys live like professional athletes. They're, you do your three gym sessions a week, your pitch sessions, three pitch sessions or two pitch sessions, or vice versa, three and two. There's probably two recovery, two rest days in, 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 in there, but uh, and that's the level. I mean, if you don't, you're, you're not going to be at the, at, at the playing field. Simple as that, there, Dublin really have gone to a different level, and um, but I don't know if the split season, I'm not 100% sure, I'm not, I'm not 100% convinced about it, to be quite honest. Um, for a number, probably a couple, a couple of reasons. Uh, does that mean that leagues the leagues probably start in January? Does your pre-season go back to December? Start in January, you run through. I'm all in favour of games and week in week out, to be quite honest. And and you know, when we were playing, Joe and James will allude to this. I mean, you played one championship game and you had four weeks off, and you had another four weeks off or three weeks off, and you know, and uh, there was one game in Ulster every every Sunday, and that was it. That day has gone. There'll be multiple games, and uh, and I think it did work well. The 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 championship last season. I know what, what, what i spectators. But, uh, you know, when you finish your clubs or your inter-county season, say July, some of the teams will probably be gone by June. When does your club season start? Does that roll into, for the successful teams, into October, November? I don't know. Uh, they're going to be playing 10 or 11 months.
0: No, but as long as you... I mean, the key thing is this. you I mean, what do you need to start with is to say, OK, look, we're going to have a season that lasts no longer than seven months. But All in. All in. You know, say for, for example club teams who go on to all are in the semi-finals and finals. So we shorten it. We make sure that there are those breaks. And then you play the games every week, just as you said, Declan. You know, I mean, it's just a matter then of, of, of finding the correct model. But you start with shortening the season. And I think that that principle is being established now in the minds of you know the, the bureaucrats in the GAA. That principle is being established over the pandemic and with the proposals for this year. Obviously, this year is going to have to be a drastically shortened season as well and uh, I think that would propel our thinking towards saying, look, this is a lot healthier.
1: James, we're seeing, uh, I, I'd expect and I'd hope, that less money be spent on this runaway train of inter-county teams. You've been dealing with minors for the last few years and down. Uh, how are they uh, like approaching the game as young lads? And also, how's their mental health been, like you know, having to obviously be young people and be in this constrained environment in the pandemic? Certainly...
2: The mental health issue would be something that uh, that you know, back in our day, we would have been told they're tightening ourselves up and they get on with it and you know too big like Jesse and tighten up with it. But unfortunately, to say that's not the language you can use anymore. I, I've been told off by <laughs> of on numerous occasions, you know, that there have been school teachers telling me that I just cannot speak to people in such contexts. But look, mental health is an issue like. We would have had if, if you even you're trying to spur a guy on uh, and and try and you know you use language. Look, I think he can be a wee bit fitter. Maybe you lose a bit of weight, and then the fella doesn't come back the next the next night because he feels that you've been criticised of him and he's, he's in a bad place. He's depressed because you thought he could be a bit. You know some really strange things that back in our day would be laughed about. But yeah, you have to. I'm not going to say pussyfoot around because i sent it the wrong signal. But you have to, you have to use the language that's appropriate for the time. And uh, at times, I found that difficult. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, so uh, that's big, big Brian
0: McGilligan using the language of wellness.
2: <laughs> yeah. right, they sent me on a few Zoom courses to try and tidy up my. My dressing room, you know,
0: matters. But but that's that sort of tyranny of politics that has come into every area of life now, you know, where where we have to speak in a very bland way. I mean, you see it with with television. You know, you see it increasingly. Like, I I listened to a presentation recently over Zoom by a well-known sports coach. I just tuned in to listen to it, you know, just to make sure that my prejudices were correct. And, I mean, honestly, it was mindset growth and skill set growth and um, you know a, a language of gobbledygook that really means nothing in the end but that's safe you know no one gets offended they all nod and they say well thank you very much that was very very helpful and uh, you come away none the wiser you know just so we would have had a couple of,
2: we would have had a couple of experiences with the miners during lockdown of, of players not coping and you know parents sort of reaching out to the the, the management team, and we weren't allowed to, to meet them, to train them. And we probably, you know, volunteered to meet them one-on-one, but socially distance just to take them for a training session, yeah, just yeah. to try and give them a ch- chance. But, you know, the, the lockdown, the fallout from lockdowns is still to be discovered. In, in, oh, I, in the I, I, I agree.
0: And particularly where it's established scientifically, the transmission rates are virtually zero outdoors. Um you know, that, that, that a method, a mechanism couldn't be found to allow small groups of young people to train outdoors You know, in, in the proper groups, which we were doing with great success when we were allowed to do that. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, a, 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 a study of 7,000 COVID cases in China revealed that only two of those were via outdoor transmission, and that was two elderly neighbours We'd spent a long time chatting together in close proximity during that time. So, I mean, we, we went through a full, I mean, my minors last year went through a full minor championship campaign because we had obviously, we were permitted to do that. Um, you know, there was no changing room, no indoors, all outdoors. We didn't have a single case, not a single case through an entire minor championship campaign. And uh, I, I agree with you entirely that it's, 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 uh, very 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 difficult for kids at this time you know because i think joe play. i think you're right i
3: think me i mean and james also I mean go back i came back in with the underage system maybe 10 years ago now and it's completely it's a different it's a different world we live in now to be quite honest you know Ooh. and uh, you've got to be very careful everything you do everything you say uh and a lot of it comes from 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 individual backgrounds too and uh, you can see it at first hand. mean, parents getting really involved. And, you know, we're in 12 months now in this lockdown. And, and I think Joe 100% right. Pitches should have been, quite honest, left open for, for these ki- children. And, you know, they're not going in the address rooms. I mean, they're out right on, on an open pitch uh, doing some other than playing PlayStation or, or and, uh, I mean, it's going to, I mean, it's good. I don't know what's going to be, uh, come out of the last twelve months in relation to some of these kids that are growing up now. I see it firsthand. I mean, they've lost uh, they, you know know—they're on Zoom meetings for college. They're on Zoom meetings. a young lad doing his leaving. Said he, he just got back into school this week, but they, they've lost touch with their with their with their friends and contact, and it's all over this media now. and uh, this media. And it's it's difficult. It's very very difficult. Yeah.
2: It'll be
0: like it'll be like the end of World War Two, and this is all over. You know, people will go crazy.
3: You're, well, it'd not take uh, I'd not take a year out for you to go crazy, Joe. You're all right.
1: You're on social media a lot, Joe, and I'm see you talking about like how society has changed and the way society is now. I'm just I'm just curious, given. The, the, the Gordon Elliott situation this week, and there's been a lot of obviously talk about what he did and what he did was wrong and everything, and the, you know, the opprobrium that he's received and the, um, the cancel culture that's out there. <clears throat> I'm just interested in your view, Joe, on um, as, as a fellow dairyman on the level of abuse that James McLean uh, has received on social media. He's been very eloquent about why he chose not to wear the poppy. Um, he's working and living in England. You must have a, a huge degree of empathy for him.
0: It's part of it. You know, he's a Derry Republican and uh, he he has made no uh, bones about that. I mean, anybody who grew up during James's era in Derry, you know, is very likely to have very anti-establishment tendencies. You know, don't forget that the cradle of the civil rights movement was gerrymandering in places like Derry City, uh, depriving many people in poorer Catholic areas of the vote. I mean, things that people young people nowadays would be stunned to learn about. So, you know, and, and so, you know, there's nothing surprising about James being forthright about his views. He has decided to to wear his colors on his sleeve and therefore that's the decision that he has made, you know, and when you, when you step out like in the way that he has, you know, if you say anything nowadays, well, there's going to be a backlash. And uh, I mean, obviously, you, you know, he, he doesn't deserve uh, the, the, the sort of level of abuses there. But once you're a high profile person, um, you have to, you just, you just learn to filter it out, you know, filter it out or else stop doing it. You know, get off social media, don't, don't make appearances, don't be involved in that. And, uh, you know, once you see it for what it is, then I think you can handle it easily enough. He's a big
1: boy. We started off a conversation, James, about um, the troubles and 30 years ago, and, and when uh, these northern teams that you were involved in won the All-Ireland. Has there been a dividend out of the peace process? Obviously, the, the, the key dividend is this peace, but has the GA benefited from um, you know, the, the peace process in terms of infrastructure and funding and support?
2: I suppose it hasn't been uh, as much money spent on, on uh, defending outposts, etc., and it has been a bit more lobbying with the key, Joe. Did they not get the biggest grant? Johnny McGurk get a massive grant for Lave down there in, in Derry for a big indoor facility back in the day. They, they, they were the keys of opening the door for the finances from the government of the GAA. Mm-hmm. So, look, the, you the, may very area. well
0: think so James, I, James, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: well, uh,
0: I wouldn't answer any of those Free Stater's questions <laughs> about <laughs> infrastructure in the north. They weren't that much concerned about infrastructure in the north during the Troubles. Whenever Whatever they pretended to come to the border to assist us and then they, then they retreated. and then for the next generation, they entirely supported the British side and were apologists. With, sorry, we're apologists for an appalling, inhumane regime, which if we saw now in China or Russia, you know these same people would be rushing to condemn. You know, so I wouldn't be getting palsy-walsy with these boys, we, James, to be fair. Well,
2: we are in
0: dying got You got got grants, which we were absolutely entitled to. Let me tell you how those grants came about. (laughs) The Government of Ireland Act guaranteed parity of funding for sports in the North. I think the statistic was that there were over 1,000 council soccer pitches and not a single council Gaelic pitch. It was self-help. You know, we did all of this ourselves, and when grants became available through the European funds, we, because we had very high capacity at clubs, because we're community-based, so in the Dun Given club, lawyers, accountants, you know, people involved in politics at a higher level, we were able to harness all of that capacity to make sure that we got what was owned to us. But that's all that we got. And this sort of notion out there, oh, you know, that oh, we we took the Queen's shilling. Let me. Be absolutely clear about this. The Queen has taken everyone's shilling. You know, I mean, starting fair, starting, <laughs> starting with the invasion of Ireland coming forward. I mean, you know, her fortune, her fortune didn't sort of magically appear from nowhere. Well, so,
1: to be, uh,
0: you know, I think sorry, can I just finish this? I think it's biased, I think it's sectarian, you know, and I think it's entirely discriminatory to imply that in the north we somehow milk. The British system to get a Quite food loan, to assist meant, with
2: floodlights and things like that. I didn't mention the North, I just mentioned Derry. But anyway, just to be fair, <laughs> to be fair... I won't answer fair, any of that Free Stater's <laughs> questions, James. <laughs> to, to be fair, in County Down, we're actually, uh, we're hoping to open our centre of excellence, excellence in Valley Kilner, on land that was gifted to us. So you, it was rightly ours to begin with, Joel, I'm just going to get in before you say it. But we've been given background in Valley Kilner, of the Army take it over where there was internment back in the day. So things have maybe come full circle. It doesn't make any apology for what happened many years ago, but at least some of the down may benefit with some of the, the, the ground that we're gonna get for a center of excellence. It's hard for me
1: to oh, yeah. it, it's hard, it's hard for me to segue, guys, from that to uh, to Eklund asking you about cynical fouling in the in the Gaelic uh, football uh, environment. Uh, given what we saw Congress last weekend, what do you think about this rule? Are we in the sweet spot now with this rule about the penalty being awarded if a foul uh, cynically is committed inside the 21 yard line or the D, in addition to the sin bin, the black card?
3: Listen, I think to leave the rules, leave the rules, the rules are all right, leave them the way they are. I don't see any reason. And uh, um, nah, no, listen, I don't really. Any real opinion on that? I want to be quite honest. You know, I think I think the rules are okay. I think we've changed. I think Congress seem to come up every year. And they they seem to, to come up with a different, a couple of different new rules or ideas every year. So uh, uh, the the other one was the joint captains. <laughs> yeah, another exciting, exciting one. But now listen here, leave things as they are. They're fine. I just
0: yeah, well, I, I I thoroughly disagree with that. I have to say that, you know, and I mean, there was nothing more disparaging for a farmer. You know, it could have happened. Tui, e. James, it could have happened to you because you played the position. And that's what we go to games for. We go to, we go to games to see Declan Bonner sticking the ball in the net. He's through. Oh, Jesus, here he goes. This is the moment. Will he beat the keeper? Oh! You know, and we've all been there. And the the cynicism that has come into the game, the very, you know, the, the targeted systematic cynicism, which is, look, he's inside, you pull him down, take one for the team, etc., etc. You know, and the black card was never targeted properly. The punishment never fitted the crime, Unlike rugby, for example, where if you get sin bin, it 's you know you get your penalty try, you get your penalty conversion without even have to take it. you know the player gets sent off or the player gets sin bin average fourteen points against during the sin bin the punishment fits the crime so that the player afterwards is apologising and then the manager said, "What the f- were you thinking of in our game it 's different it's that was a smart one because it deprived them of a goal scoring opportunity and it brought us home so. I think that they the, the, the rule I've contended for is if you deprive an opponent of a clear goal scoring opportunity by a cynical foul, you know, so we James comes out, he wins the ball, he's going through. The Sean Cavan has done on him. Red card and penalty. Red card and penalty. will not do it again. Won't do it again. We don't go we don't go to games to see guys dragging guys down. You know, it's a depressing and sort of nihilistic. Thing we, we don't like to see it in society in general, we don't want to see it in our sports where we go to see the best of our young men playing. You know, I don't want to see we James or Declan Bonner being dragged down when they're through for goal with 30 seconds to go in a huge game. And if they are dragged down cynically, fair enough, take one for the team. There's your red card. Here's the penalty. Here's the penalty. And if you can stick it in the net, well, there you there's still the, you know, you're not being awarded the penalty goal. And I think that finally, finally is the remedy for this problem. I've been arguing for it since the black card was advocated because the black card was far too fuzzy and vague, and it didn't really
1: work. Is the game more cynical than it was 30 years ago, James? Absolutely, definitely.
2: Look, the game has definitely changed. Back in, in, in the day, it was man for man. It was You went to see the individual context contests. You went to see uh, Joe Brawley been marked by... Uh, Mickey Lennon been marked by... Uh, Tony Scullion or Kieran McKeever, or you went to see the man on man competitions, James McCartan beat Paul Donnelly from Tyrone. But now, now, the way the numbers behind the ball, you could be a very, very poor defender and not be found out. But you could, just as long as you're a decent ball player, you, you hang around in the cluster of players and, uh, and wait for your team to win the ball back and then you break. And uh, you look good because you're the man that brings the ball carrying the ball out. And yes, you need that player, but if you're picked in defense, I like you to be able to defend. Uh, Dan Gordon said to me once, I think, before the Ulster final in 2012, when we were trying to figure out how to beat Donegal, which we failed miserably to do, but, uh, he said that my mother could play in the Donegal full-back line with. A man in front, another man on the other side, and two beside. So it was never man on man. It was always going into the spider's web and getting and caught up. So look from that point of view, uh, things have changed. I hopefully it's drifting back to a more positive uh, uh, outlook that we're not all sitting behind the ball. Is it any more cynical? Look, I don't know the the black card thing. The changes there. I think Joe's right. The black card was flawed, and the fact that people who were getting sent off. Uh, with meaningless, innocuous tackles or reasons, but because it fitted the the description of the black card that had to go, uh, even though it was a nothing incident, and he looked back at it, he he did do what they said, but that's not what the rule was brought in for, you know, as Joe was alluded to. Uh,
1: Just before we finish up, guys, and I appreciate the conversation today, uh, the Dubs, uh, they've been amazing, six All-Irelands in a row, in 92, not Donegal, 93, Derry, 94, Dan, you all beat the Dubs, you all had their number, um, will, can, must the Dublin Stranglehold be, uh, be, be, be broken, Declan?
3: Listen, it, anything's possible. It's, uh, they're a serious teams, no doubt about it. I mean, any team that won six all-irons on, on, on the bounce, it could have been eight. Um, they're a serious, serious outfit, and uh, they've raised the bar to, to a different level. Uh, are they beatable? Yeah, listen, any, any team's beatable. It, it hasn't happened over the last six years, but you've got to, you've got to believe. That is possible. Uh, otherwise, why why do it? Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's 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 not easy. Jim Gavin has come in. I think it started with Pat Gilroy. It's probably started maybe 15, 20 years ago um, when they got the, their, their their systems in play. But uh, they are serious. There's no doubt. They're a really high performance team, and uh, it's it, it's it is difficult. There's no doubt. And uh, there's work a lot of work to do for for, for a lot of counties, but. Uh, it is doable. That's the bottom line. Otherwise, you know, why why,
1: why why, keep doing this day in, day out? What you see in terms of the future with this, Joe, with the dubs?
0: I have to say I've been terribly disappointed in Tony Donegalo the last two years. I thought that they'd been prepared brilliantly. And I thought, you know, I'd seen them at close quarters on a number of occasions, and I thought, these guys, you know, I think from your perspective now, Declan, it's the mental side of it. Your younger lads are not performing on the big days. I particularly remember the day against Mayo in the crucial qualifier game um, where, where Mayo, I know it's a very seasoned Mayo team, but the Donegal boys allowed Mayo to bully them. And again, this year, I felt that against Calvin instead of pushing through and pushing through and pushing through, you know, that's the side of the game that has to be worked on. Because it seems to me, you guys have the athleticism, the talent, the ability, the all round football, all over the field. Very versatile players, a load of pace, a load of skill. As for the Dubs, you know, because they've now built such a solid foundation, you know, they've they they, they they've got unrivaled experience now and they've discovered that they thrive when it comes to the crunch. You know, you look at how steadily, you know, their games against Mayo, they win by a point, win by a point, win after a replay. I think five times they've won big All-Ireland semi-finals or finals. After a replay, four or five times, they've won games by a point, by a point, by a point. But now they're starting to cruise ahead. And I think that's because they have unrivaled experience in the clutch, in the clutch moments. Because as the two boys will tell you, having been part of winning teams, the crucial thing about winning is to make decisive contributions at the crucial times. And that's where Dublin are now peerless. That's where they're happy, and they understand that's the real joy and satisfaction of the game. And you you look at the fact that a number of truly outstanding Gaelic footballers and fellows with very strong character have come together at the same time. You know, as you had with the teams that we played on, but you've got you know boys like James McCarthy. You know, uh, they're they're defenders who, contrary to what James was saying about most teams, which is correct. That they're always looking for support, their defenders defend, you know, and they, they do that properly. They they're quite happy to play you man to man. But you add into that now, into this culture. Boys coming in like Kieran Kilkenny, and then for me, Connell Callahan. I mean, you know, I talked about Wee James and you know, players who are once in an era, you know, Wee James, Clifford, possibly you know, Clifford's going to have to up his game again. But Conor Callahan, for me at the moment is the premier Irish sportsman across all the sports. He is unmarkable, extraordinary, totally distinctive skill set. I mean, look at his performance against Mayo when the chips were down. Look at his explosion onto the scene against Mayo a few years ago. And, the, and Tyrone, the goal that destroyed Tyrone's sort of Maginot line in the, in the All-Ireland semi-final. And... Uh, these guys, when it comes to it, they have four or five players who will break the strangleholds, will break the gridlock in a game, will forge on. And we see that all the time. And we've sort of we got to the stage of thinking to ourselves, oh, well, like if Dublin will just do that. But when you actually think about what they're doing, it's that at the most fever pitch in a game, whenever everything's on the line, they have people who will make decisive contributions. That's why Mayo don't win; they all are, because they've got key players who never make decisive contributions. Dublin make them now as a matter of course, and until until Donegal, um show the sort of metal that Declan Bonard's team showed, you know, I don't think that I, you know, or Kerry can somehow get themselves together after a tragic, tragic season, when I understand there are all sorts of eruptions in the camp. And until Kilkenny, Conor Callaghan and these boys uh, reach 30, 31, 32, I see seven, eight, nine All-Irelands there. Yeah, I think this years a formality.
1: What do you see, James?
2: Look, there's probably not much I could add there. I was on the Sunday game a number of years ago when I said Dublin, was Dublin's to lose for the next 10 years. And I never once thought that they were going to win 10 in a row, but I'll probably revise that now. Uh, look, I thought that we'd get caught somewhere along the line. But just to see the, the changeover in the players that they had this year, and to bring in the small brothers, to bring just the the way they've integrated new players in, boys that I didn't recognise, they're obviously maybe on the panel last year on the fringe, are now starting in the team, and it's just a, a smooth change changeover, and as Joe says, they're starting to pull away. and It's just, look, you're obviously hope, hoping something's going to change. We're all looking on... Jealously, and nobody can begrudge Dublin their success because those players are outstanding and, and, and they deserve it and all the credit. But you know, just you wonder, does it's getting to the stage away the, the Kerry team of the eighties? Like does is is uh, one one All Ireland in, in uh, County County Donegal or Down or wherever thrown? Is that worth? Is that the same as five in Dublin? Like it's getting to the stage like many medals to Stephen Clux. for God's sake, Stephen. Give us a chance, my God. Would you quit? <laughs>
0: They're not affected by complacency or nerves or anything like that. You know, you'd think they're coming into games as overwhelming favourites. And the real test of a great team is how they handle underdogs. I mean, you think of Derry against you guys in 94 when we'd absolutely obliterated you the previous year in the marshes, I think by maybe 15 points. Down we're nowhere. I think you were probably in Division 2 as well. You know, we were All-Ireland champions. We had a swagger in our step. I mean, I remember a few nights before the game, Eamon Coleman said in the changing room at Celtic Park, and you know, Eamon was very funny, you know, but he shouldn't have said it, obviously. Eamon says, "What do you hear what them stupid bastards in Downers done. He says, apparently, is what he says, he says, apparently, he says, they've booked, they've, booked, they've, booked the, they've booked the hotel in Dublin for the All-Ireland Final. And the, the dressing room exploded. It actually exploded, everybody laughed. Honestly, and I like can remember thinking, Jesus, we shouldn't be laughing, this is not funny. You know, and you come to the morning of the game and you come to the day of the game and then all of a sudden, you know, Mickey Linton starts scoring points in the first half, Jeez, you, know, you know, first 15 minutes, it looks all dirty, it looks as if it's all gonna happen. And then all of a sudden the is in the air and Derry don't cope with it. You come through, you score the winning goal at the end. It doesn't happen to Dublin. It, it just, it doesn't happen to them. They just close it out. And that's the frightening thing about them.
1: We have the book here, The Boys of '93, Joe, Eamon Coleman and Maria McCourt, forward by yourself a few years ago. That book came out. Um, I think the pandemic will be behind us, Declan, when we have a full uh, crowd uh, at Clonus and a full town and the Diamond and an Ulster final and people back and enjoying themselves and and being Gales again.
3: Yeah, not beats and, uh, you know, Clonus, we've been forced enough to be there as players and managing teams and um, uh, one of my most forgetful days in, in management would have been back, going back to 98 and uh, Joe getting that last minute goal, which was an, an obvious push, push from Jeffrey and he laid it off to Joe. And in the, game? Says the rest The rest is history. But you can't beat that That before when you come into the, the, the diamond there and Clonus on also finally 30 odd thousand people and you uh, um, yeah, the excitement of it all. Brilliant. You couldn't, can't beat it. I think looking, at looking, I don't think it's going to happen uh, this, this year, but uh, it's going to be another difficult, difficult campaign. And suppose we've been living in the last 12 months, more or less, on, on Zoom calls and meetings. And uh, it's just a complete new way of life for everyone. And it's about adapting to that there now. We're just waiting for word. The guys are working away on their own and it's about waiting on word to get back on the pitch to see if what's going to happen. So we don't have that yet. So, yeah, this is, it's not easy. It's been a difficult twelve months, and I know it's been a difficult twelve months for for everyone. And but uh, let's hope there's light at the end of the tunnel. With uh, the vaccine coming out now, and um, you know, let's hope there's a bit of positivity to come.
0: Well, no, know no, will know, we'll know We're we're on the right track, Declan. Whenever we're in Paddy's, myself, yourself, and Tony Boyle having
3: a having. A That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, look for, look forward to that day now, all right?
2: Right. We 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 James up because he never gets anywhere.
3: No, we'll bring we'll bring James definitely. Yeah, no, no doubt. No, I,
2: yeah. You wouldn't catch me in any of those hostilities. I, I wouldn't be a pub man at all. I no chance. We James is great when he's sober. He
0: talks about how great all his other down teammates were. But whenever he's drunk, all he does is talk about himself.
2: The only thing about Joe, drunk or sober, he's talking. So we don't know whether he's drinking or not because he's ever
3: James, are you are you happy enough? You got uh, you got equal time there today.
2: No, but he spent a good bit of it talking about me, so I'll give him a fool's pardon.
3: <laughs> I don't know what you two were at beforehand, anyway. but I'll tell you what, Joe, it's uh, the checks in the post there.
0: <laughs> I, no, I've, said, I've said it many times, you know, and, and uh, I remember, I, I remember Paddy Heaney, the, the journalist Seamus' nephew, going up to do a feature piece up at McCartan's house. I don't know if you remember it, Seamus. But he went up and I think he said there was a tyre. Was there a tyre? In the backyard, and your father came out and he just took a ball and he kicked it through the tire from sort of twenty meters and he said that's how you do it, boys. And walked away with the chest out. And of course, James's <laughs> father was James's father was one of the great, the greatest ever footballers, you know, in Ireland. And and like his like his like his great son, totally unmarkable when the mood took him. But uh, no, no, I'm I'm totally serious about what I said about we James. You know, and I think that I think Declan would probably agree that it was him as the catalyst for that down team. And then that down team is the catalyst for us. It changed everything.
1: And that's what we've been talking about today. Joe Brawley, James McCartan, Declan Bonner, down, Derry and Donegal, that success in the 90s and a few thoughts on Gaelic Games nowadays. Mind yourself, guys. Thanks so much for your time and uh, best of luck for the rest of the year. Thank Thank you. Thanks, John. This is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. We're back after this. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation.